Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. And we're going to be reading here from verse 1 down to verse 6. The focus of our sermon today is verse 5 and 6. And, and um, two verses, that's all we're going to be looking at today. And you say, wow, Bob, that's all. Well, you'll, you'll see there's, there's a lot there. Um, so let's begin in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we humbly bow before you this day to look once again to your word, to look to scripture. Father, for your divine will to be revealed to us, we pray that you would open our hearts today. May we be tender before you. May we have teachable spirits. And I pray, Lord, if there's any area of our life that is not in conformity with your will, that you would expose it. And then indeed, through the exposure, that we would be brought to humble repentance and confession. Father, more importantly, we pray that you would glorify yourself in today's message and that you indeed would be lifted up here in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, so just give me one moment. Well, anyway, just bear with me one moment. So God is good, amen? So this week we had a, a um, balloon uh, that was flying over the United States from China. Right? It was a Chinese spy balloon. And I guess we waited till it got over the Atlantic and we shot it down. Um, and, and, and I read a piece that one of the major concerns among a lot of uh, home security experts is that of an EMP. If you're, not con- if you're not sure what an EMP is, it's called an electromagnetic pulse. Uh, basically, a foreign adversary could detonate a nuclear explosive above in the atmosphere, far above where it wouldn't actually directly impact any of us. But what it would do is send an electromagnetic pulse, basically frying uh, the entire electrical grid in the country. Um, so everything that relies on electricity would be gone. Uh, you wouldn't have i you wouldn't have iPhones no more. You wouldn't be able to get money out of a bank. The stock market would shut down. Your doctors, all their re- medical records would shut down. It could it would it would basically sink us into the Stone Age. Um, I know it's been one of my greatest concerns uh, in terms of a uh, an attack from a foreign adversary because it would totally send the country into confusion and chaos instantly. But one of the things that I think it brings to reality is that we just seem to be on the brink of something brewing. There's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world today. There is a conflict in, um, in the Ukraine right now with Russia that has been escalating for several months. And we don't know where that's going to uh, end or how it's going to end, but certainly uh, Vladimir Putin has been uh, threatening the idea that there are going to be uh, an escalation and possibly nuclear strikes. 
Uh, tensions have also increased with China. Um, this balloon was nothing. We've seen increasing conflict with trade wars, and they've been expanding their military for quite some time, um, and, and who knows where this will all lead to. The truth of the matter is we can't avoid it. War will come eventually. Afghanistan and Iraq uh, had us consumed for about 10 years in the Middle East. Prior to that, it was uh, something else. I mean, it's Vietnam, it's World War II. We are certainly um, on the verge of some big war, and it should not surprise us if we do. But there is a bigger war than all of this that's raging, and that war is the war that we don't talk about much. It's a war that's been raging from the very beginning and will continue to the day we die. It's the war within us. It's the, the war between the flesh and the spirit. It's the war between our earthly nature and our heavenly nature. It's the war between sin and Christ. And that war rages not out there, although it does express itself out there, but mainly within, within our hearts. And it's a war that goes on 24-7. The language in our text today makes it very clear how we need to approach this war and the posture of our hearts. It says in verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. The idea of putting to death or mortify, as it says in the old King James Version, literally means to kill, to slay, to destroy, to murder, and it's telling us that in this battle, we must have a posture to kill. We must have a posture to kill. What, what is it that we have to kill? What is earthly in you? What is earthly in you? It's not talking about your actual body, but the earthliness is your human sinful nature. It's, it, it's, it's of this world. It's of this origin. It's the flesh. It's the the, the carnal nature, that's what's earthly, as opposed to, in contrast with Paul said earlier, seek that which is above. Keep your mind fixed on things above in the heavenly places. So the battle is to either be focused on heaven or to be focused on this world. To have a spiritual mindset or to have an earthly mindset. And that earthliness is in us. It, 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 there's gravity to it, literal gravity that drags us into human sinfulness and complacency. Now, in this battle, we are promised the ultimate victory. The Bible tells us that one day we are going to win because Christ has won. Because Christ has risen from the dead, we will rise from the dead, and one day we will put off this body of death and put on a, a, a new body, a body of the Spirit, and we will be free from sin once and for all. Praise God, I cannot wait. But in this world, we must have the posture to kill. As Puritan John Owen said, kill sin or sin will be killing you. Listen to what Sam Storms says regarding this battle. He says, there are only two options when it comes to dealing with sin. You are either reckless or you are ruthless. There is no middle ground. To opt for some third possibility is itself a reckless choice. Either we are ruthless in our commitment and efforts to kill sin, lest it be killing us, or we are reckless by default. One doesn't have to make deliberate choices to commit specific sins to be reckless. All one needs to do is fail to take a calculated and precise steps to avoid temptation 
flee sin at its first sight, and treat it as one's mortal enemy. Not to do so is to be reckless, defined by Webster as lacking proper caution, careless of consequences, negligent, regardless of intent, regardless of stated hatred for sin. You see what's going on here? What Sam Storms is describing is that our posture must be that to see sin as our mortal enemy. Sin is a viper. You can't kill sin once and be done. It keeps coming back. Zombie films are all the rage right now. Zombie TV shows. For whatever reason, people love zombie shows. I haven't watched one of them. I know there's a new one everybody's crazy about, and, and they watched a few episodes, and then I, I was thinking, hmm, maybe I'll watch it. It's based on some old video game. And, and sure enough, sure, sure, I saw an article this week that said the third episode was all about a homosexual couple kissing and making love and everything. And I'm saying, thank God I didn't get into the show. I don't need it. That's exactly what our sermon is all about. There's never been a time that we need to discuss the problem of sexual impropriety and sexual sin because it's so prominent in our culture. It's pervasive. It's infectious. And it's destroying our society. It's destroying our culture. It's destroying families. It's destroying churches. We live in a sex-crazed society. And we are reckless if we don't deal with it as a mortal enemy. That's what our sermon is about today. The killing, the, the fight has to deal with this zombie of sin that keeps resurrecting. You kill it once and it gets back up and it comes for you. It's a zombie. It doesn't die easily. It's like mold. Yesterday I was in my shower and all around the base of the shower there was mold that got stuck into the silicone. I had to scrape it all out. My, my legs are still sore from, from with a torch, with a blowtorch. And a, that's how pervasive mold is. And it'll grow again. And this is how it is when you deal with, with sin. It keeps coming back. It keeps coming back. And just when you think you've had victory, which is why you cannot rest. You cannot take a day off because sin doesn't take a day off. You cannot go to sleep because sin doesn't sleep. When David sat at home and didn't go to battle with the rest of, of Israel and he was sitting in his palace relaxing, resting, what happened? Sin got him. So what exactly is the apostle telling us to put to death? What is earthly in us? What is this earthliness? Well, look what it says. Put to death what is earthly in you. And he goes on. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And so he lists five vices here, which are really not distinct from themselves they're not mutually exclusive but rather they all describe the same thing a person who's very sensual and carnal and lustful and 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 basically lives for sexual pleasure now i want you to realize with me that as sex crazed as our society is today it was the same way in the first century first century greco-roman empire was very sexualized 
Not only was it very sexualized, was it a very sexually free society, but it was baked into the culture and the religions of the day. In other words, when you were a pagan, celebrating pagan festivals and pagan rituals quite often included the sexual activity, whether it was with a temple prostitute or whether it was in a a, a festal parade in which orgies would take place in the open square. It was very much part of the culture, and in some sense, even, even more obscene than our culture is today. And so for the church, God calls out the church and they commit themselves to a life of holiness. It was radically different than what they had experienced their whole lives. The church was called to live in a sense of purity and holiness and virginity when the rest of the world was completely gone in sexual perversity. And so we cannot sit here and think that the church then was much different than it is now. In fact, I I suggest to you they were more challenged than we are. And so we must have this posture of approaching sin, approaching this sinfulness in us. And I I like to describe it as the beast, the beast of sexual sin, because it's a monster. It's a beast and it's ravenous and it has an appetite. Sin is described as a beast to us, right? Earlier in Genesis chapter 4, God warned Cain, sin is crouching at the door like a lion. Its desire is for you. Sin is described like a pouncing lion, a beast, an animal, ferocious, hungry. Isn't it odd that Satan himself is described as a roaring lion seeking one to devour? No wonder, because sin is of Satan. Satan is the author of sin. And so we we fight this inner beast. We have to slay it daily. How do we slay it? Well, Jesus gives us very practical words to it. Matthew 18, verses 7 through 9, Woe to the world for temptations, for it is necessary temptations to come, but woe to the one whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. The Lord makes it very simple. you got to do whatever it takes to cut sin out of your life. That's what putting sin to death means. It does not mean cutting off your arms and plucking out your eyes. You could pluck out your eyes and cut off all your arms and you will still be sinful. In Saudi Arabia, it, 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 you know, if you get caught stealing or pickpocketing, they cut your hand off. All right? I read a story of a pickpocket. They caught him stealing. They cut one hand off. And guess what? He got caught stealing a second time. Guess what they did? They cut off his second hand. They found him pickpocketing with his teeth. Sin will find a way. The Lord is talking about cutting off sin at its root. Starving out sin. Not feeding the sinful nature. Putting it to death. Slaying the beast requires an attitude that is constantly on the alert and constantly ready for war. And to put that beast to death. That beast dwells within and the beast can only survive if we feed it. Romans 13, 14 tells us, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make what? No provision for the flesh. To make no provision for the flesh means 
that we live our lives in such a way that we're conscious about what we listen to, what we do, who we associate with, where we go, so that we make no provision for the flesh. We avoid circumstances, we avoid people, we avoid conversations, we avoid things that are going to feed the beast. Well, what does this beast look like? There are four characteristics, five characteristics that Paul describes of the the beast of sexual sin. And the first word is sexual immorality, which is the word porneia in Greek. Well, it's very obvious that the word porneia is the origin of the root of the word pornography for our English language. And the word porneia in ancient Greek covered, uh, it was a broad term that covered a whole slew of sexual activity. And it basically means any sexual activity that takes place outside of the confines of marriage between one man and one woman. And I think it's important to understand here and acknowledge that that sex is not necessarily a bad thing. Sex is a good thing. God created sex. When God created man and woman, he created man and woman to be married and to he created sex to be enjoyed by a husband and a wife. The two purposes of sexual intercourse are 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 for one is the procreation of the human race, obviously, to bring a godly seed into the world, be fruitful and multiply as the command of God, and also for the mutual pleasure and happiness of the couple. Marriage was always part of God's plan from the beginning, and the design for marriage is that two people commit their lives to one another, and that sexuality is a healthy expression of that commitment. Now, when we talk about porneia, we talk about everything that exists outside those boundaries. So when we talk about premarital sex, which is the norm these days, that's porneia, that's sexual immorality, or as the King James Version calls it, fornication. Adultery is fornication. And homosexuality is fornication. I don't care if Two men or two women marry, it's illegitimate in the eyes of God. It is still porneia. It is still illegitimate sex. But why? Why is it that sexual sin is so bad? I, I often hear opponents of Christianity say, oh, those, those uptight Christians, all they care about is uh, uh, sex and uh, regulating people's sexual lives. Why don't they... Why don't they get a life for themselves? I, I've heard this from unbelievers. I, I've read pieces like this. They, they think we're just a bunch of uptight old Victorians. But, but I think they miss the point. Sexuality, which was created by God in, in the design of marriage, when it's abused and used outside that context, perverts that which God creates as good. It distorts what God creates as good. And in fact, what it does is mar the image of God. And for believers, it even is deeper because as believers... God has redeemed and purchased our bodies and we don't have a right to do with it what we want. Look at me in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Starting in verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. Again, that word, porneia. You're not supposed to use your body for illicit sexual relations. It's for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. 
And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Remember we talked about that mystic union between us and the Lord Jesus? It's not just your soul that's joined to Christ. Our physical bodies are one with Jesus. Shall I then, as it says in verse 15b, take the members of Christ and make them members of a whore? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin. Now listen, here's the reason why. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from pornea. Flee from fornication. Why? Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. In verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Your body does not belong to you. You can't just do whatever you want flagrantly. Your body was purchased by the blood of Jesus. Your body belongs to Jesus. And you are to preserve it till the resurrection. You defile that which God calls his dwelling place. Furthermore, God places a premium on sexual purity and vows judgment on those who disregard him hebrews 13:4 let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for god will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous you could be sure of that also it is the will of god for us to be pure first thessalonians 4 3 through 4 for this is the will of god your sanctification that what the first thing on the list you abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. You see, if we can't control our bodies, then our bodies control us. And so many people are slaves to their flesh. Secondly, Paul says in purity, Again, these are not disconnected, but they're all part of the same. They're different dimensions of the same sin. Word impurity means literally moral uncleanness, and it has, it has relations back to the Old Testament of being clean or unclean, defiled or, or corrupted. And it, and it has to do with an overall state of being, of being filthy or dirty. And it carries allusion to this Old Testament uh, uh, idea. The term deals with an inner disposition. It deals with a, with a mindset. It deals with a person who inwardly is dirty. And this is in direct opposition to what Paul said in verses 1 through 3. Keep your mind fixed on things above. The earthly person's mind is in the gutter. It's on earthly things. And as a result, it creates impurity and, and filth and dirt. Now, this is something that I think that is more is pervasive in different ways. It expresses itself in, in the way we talk in obscenities. And, and, and when we hear obscenities and we hear foul and uh, filthy language from other people, it infects us and we uh, produce the same thing. 
It has to do, if you're involved in consuming media, whether it's uh, social media or books or, or novels or video games or movies, and it's dirty and it's rated R, and you're consuming this on a regular basis, it's going to affect your mind. It's going to corrupt and defile you within. Dirt in, dirt out. This is common sense. And probably the, the biggest uh, 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 offender in this area is Pornography. We just looked at the word porneia, but it is probably here in the term impurity where pornography has the greatest toll on our society. Pornography is the most soul-crushing, defiling thing to the soul and the mind. It stains the soul. It corrupts the mind. It leaves its imprint on the mind with, with images that corrupt and pervert and twist one's view of sex and objectifies People of the opposite gender, it is addictive and it is destructive. And anyone who says that it's, oh, it doesn't hurt anybody, has never spoken to the people whose lives have been destroyed by it. Sadly, with the ease of use of pornography today on the internet today, more and more people are consumed with it. It is a $1.1 billion industry in America. And it's growing at 12.6% year over year. There are a lot of Americans who are absolutely hell-bent on viewing pornography, who are addicted to it and give their lives over to it. We used to think it was just a, a problem with men. Far be it, according to Barna Research, among Gen Xers polled Gen Xer women, 32% of Gen Xer women have claimed to have watched pornography at least three times a year. And among millennial women, 65% claim to have watched porn at least three times a year. This has no longer just a man's problem. It is affecting men. It is affecting women. In fact, years ago, we had a young lady who came to us and told us she was struggling with pornography and her life was wrecked by it. Guys, we must be alert to the beast Put it to death. You cannot give it an inch. There is tremendous, tremendous demand. It is subtle. It, it surrounds us in our culture and our advertising. We're going to watch the Super Bowl next week. At least some of you will. And I guarantee you on the advertisements, there will be a lot of sexually charged adverts. Sex sells. And it'll trigger people. It'll trigger people into further and worse things. You got to guard your mind and your heart, for from it proceeds the issues of life. We must be in a constant state of sobriety and have a wartime mindset. Impurity is pervasive. Just like porneia, we must kill it or be killed by it. Thirdly, passion or pathos. This refers to someone who is very emotional and, as the word indicates, passionate. Passionate. Now, we, we have to realize that, the, that there, when you're someone who's very emotional or given over to your emotions or controlled by your emotions, your mind is not in control. Your feelings are in control. Pastor Paul said something last week in a meeting. He said, people put feelings above truth today. And a lot of people are governed by their feelings, by their passions, by their emotions. Whatever they feel, they 
comes out of the mouth, whatever they feel, they do. It, it, they're controlled by the impulses of their feelings. That's sensuality. When, when people are driven by such passions, it inevitably leads to an uncontrolled and unrestrained sexual activity. But the passions here within this context must be seen within a, a greater context. In Romans chapter 1, verse 26 through 27, God describes for us uh, what these passions, these ungodly passions within the framework of sexual immorality look like. And he says, for this reason, God gave them over to what? Dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with what? Passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This is the kind of passion that, that, that is being expressed here. It's this passion that drives you to basically use your body for things that are unnatural. You're so driven. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-8. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. We just read this. But look, that you would know how to control your own body in holiness and honor. Look at verse 5. Not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. The people that do not know God, they are governed by the lust of their passions. Verse 7 says, For God has called us, not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit for you. Fourthly, when you think about it, the passions are closely related with the fourth vice of evil desire, epithumeo. It basically translates lust. They all go hand, these are all synonymous with each other. Desires in themselves are not bad, but this is the kind of lust where one looks upon someone and says, I got to have them and I will not be happy until I have it. And that's what drives so many in our society today. Not only do you have people who are lusting, but you have people who make a living out of making other people lust. It's not just pornography anymore. There, I was reading about this new website that exists. It's called OnlyFans. And the reason why I know about it is because I've read about stories of women who are nurses or teachers or who have good jobs, and on the side, they do a business where they post nudes of themselves on this website to make money. They charge money for nudes. And it's a side business. They use stage names, but they get caught eventually. When their jobs find out, they fire them. But it's the biggest trending website in America right now. Not only is it bad to lust, but it's bad to make other people lust. We live in a lust-filled society. And finally, covetousness. The covetousness that's being spoken of here has nothing to do with money. It's within the context here of, of speaking of sexual sin, it has to deal with coveting what? Someone's body. This is flagrant disregard for one's neighbor and sees them simply as an object to satisfy one's own insatiable sexual appetite. No wonder why Paul could say, and this is idolatry. He's not speaking of idolatry 
in, 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 within the, the simple word covetousness, everything there in the package deal, sexual immorality, impurity, evil desire, lust, all of it combined together, covetousness presents an idolatrous approach to life. You see, when you are someone who is living like this, you're a slave. And you worship at the altar of sex. And what I see in today's society, which is so clear, sex is God to many people. They live it, they breathe it, it's their whole existence. In fact, today, people, their identity is bound up on it. Whether it's social media or even fill out a form in a, uh, um, for a, a doctor, do you identify as straight, cis, this, that? I don't know. There's so many different ways you can identify, but people's identity is bound up in their sexuality. We've elevated sexuality. That's so important that we must make it part of our identity. We've lost our way. What are we to do? Kill it. Kill it. Kill it. Slay the beast. Do not give any of it any part of your life. When any of it little pops up, kill it. Little impurity, kill it. You're in a position where temptation comes, kill it. Be ruthless or be reckless. Our lives depend on it. Here are some practical steps we can put to putting death, putting to death this earthliness. Number one, avoid anything that will stimulate your lustfulness. Anything. If there's any area of your life that you know that is creating an obstacle and a stumbling block for you, get rid of it. Be radical. It could be social media. It could be um, looking at television. It could be listening to certain music. Whatever it is that stimulates your lust, cut it out. Do the bare minimum. We, we survive. We need phones. We need computers to live today. That, that's a given. You can't smash your computer like Kirk Cameron did in, the, in, the, uh, in his movie they made years ago on this issue. That just, that's unrealistic. You need a computer and phone to survive today, unless you're Paul. But he's 93. But you need to put filters. Put literal filters on your computer and phone and put filters in your mind. You need to know when to say no and walk away. Two, slay the beast. Two, avoid any situation that puts you in a precarious position. The Billy Graham rule. You know what the Billy Graham rule is? Billy Graham would not be seen with another woman alone unless his wife was present. He wouldn't go out to eat with a woman. Mike Pence, the former vice president, also followed the Billy Graham rule, and he was invited by a, uh, a journalist to have lunch one-on-one. -on -one. He said, I won't go unless I have my wife comes with me. And the journalist went to town, mocking him, making fun of him, basically said he was a misogynist and he's uh, anti-feminist and all this stupidity. Why? Because he wanted to follow a rule of not putting himself in any position where anyone could say, look, my, he's sitting with another woman alone. Something's wrong. I don't care what the world thinks. Let them make fun of you. We're not here to please the world. We're here to please God. 
Don't put yourself in any position. This is not just for men. This is for women too. Don't put yourself, women, in a position where you're alone with a man. It's not your husband. It's not just to avoid the problem of sin, but it's also to avoid the appearance of evil. It's very easy for, if I were to counsel with a woman alone, lock the door for a couple of hours, it's very easy for that woman to come out and say, Pastor Bob, try to make a move on me. Who could prove her wrong? It's my word against hers. She could be lying through her teeth, and I saw this happen to a pastor. And his life was ruined. And the woman lied. It was wisdom. If you're single or engaged, be committed to remaining pure. Have an accountability partner. Don't allow yourself to go unchecked. And if you're single, pursue marriage. Pursue, find a wife, find a husband, commit. Unless you're a eunuch. Are there any eunuchs here? Some God makes eunuchs from birth. 1 Corinthians 7, 8, 9, to the married and to the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. That's, it's great if you can remain single. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And finally, if you're married, if you're married, glorify and honor God with sexuality as it was designed to be done. Do not deprive one another. When sex is deprived in a marriage, infidelity is close at hand. I was reading about this. Interesting again. I was doing some research for the sermon. The sexless marriage has become very common today, not among older people, but among millennials. Millennials are this interesting group of people. Millennials, I, I don't know, I forgot the birth years. If Elizabeth was here, she would tell me. But among millennials, they're finding that more and more couples are sexless in a sexless marriage. That means they have sex no more than five times a year. That's, it's kind of different definitions. But that seems to be the most common one. And yet, it's the generation that also is the most adulterous. As an old guy said from North Shore Baptist Church, I heard preach one day, if you ain't loving your spouse, someone else will. The risk of divorce goes up exponentially. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. Now concerning the matters with which you wrote... It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of temptations to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give her, his wife her conjugal rights. Likewise, the wife her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except for, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So if you're married, glorify God in your marriage. Don't deprive one another. Don't be part of that 2% of the married population that is in a sexless category and provoke each other to be tempted by Satan. Satan. 
Well, finally, let me conclude. Why should we be so serious? Why should we be so vigilant in this area? Why is this so important? Well, as I said earlier, of course, well, the why of the, the motivation for purity. But, but I want you to see the bigger issue here, going back to Colossians chapter 3, Paul warns us in verse 6, because on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. That's the reason why. Now, Paul is warning the Christian church. He's telling the Christian church, if you live like this, be warned because the wrath of God is coming due to such things. Now, it's not saying as Christians, we're not going to fall and stumble and make mistakes. That's going to happen. But if your habitual pattern and your lifestyle is defined by this, be warned, God's wrath is coming. Simply said, his indignation and his punishment upon the wicked will come upon the sexually immoral. So when you see people enjoying themselves right now and sexual promiscuity and they're going about and they're using their bodies and they're having fun and, and girls gone wild down in, in South Beach and people going to Vegas and what happens in Vegas, stay in Vegas, guess what? The wrath of God is coming because of that. When you see young women and men lost in the world of pornography and it looks like they're just going about without any problems, remember, the wrath of God is coming. When you see the world celebrate sexual perversion like homosexuality and transgenderism and open marriages, be sure, the wrath of God is coming. When you see gratuitous sex on TV and in movies and in internet, be sure, the wrath of God is coming. Sodom and Gomorrah isn't in the book in vain. God recorded the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible to serve as a warning to all mankind that the Lord will exercise his full wrath against any society that flagrantly disregards his word and abuses the gift of human sexuality. The warning could not be more explicit. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Listen to this. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, porneia, the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5.5, 5, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has zero inheritance in the kingdom of God. You could be sure of that, Paul says. And finally, in Revelation 21, 7 through 8, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for murders, for the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Do you need further warning why we should slay the beast? Why we should be at war 24-7? And I appeal especially to young people because as young people, you're going to be tempted more than those who are older. It's not that older people don't get tempted. Our bodies just wither away. But when you're young and you're, you're, your hormones are strong, you've got to be on your guard. Young men, young women. Because this is deadly. Finally, 
Last but not least, the most important thing that I could tell you here is there is hope. And there is hope because of the gospel. We can put to death that which is earthly because we have died with Christ, chapter 4, verse 3. If we have come to faith in Christ and you've been joined to him by faith, then you have died with Christ and your life is hidden with him. And just as Christ was raised to new life, we have been given new life through the power of the resurrection. Anyone who has come to faith in Jesus Christ and has surrendered their lives to him can be sure that they have the confidence that God will give you the power to overcome these areas in your life. You are no longer a slave to sin, but you've been set free by the power of Christ. Now, if you do not know Jesus, if you do not know the word of God, if, if you have not been born again, then I urge you and I appeal to you and I plead with you, humble yourselves. Come to Christ. He is our only hope. We had a men's meeting the other night and we talked about the sinlessness of Christ. Why it was utterly necessary to, for Christ to be sinless because if he sinned even once, he wouldn't be our savior his death would have been worthless and he would have never rose from the dead. Christ is our sinless savior because he did for you and I what we cannot do, live a perfect life. No matter how hard you try, you will fail. You will mess up. And I'm sure that some of you after hearing this will mess up this week. But we could rest in this that Christ is our Lord and savior. He dwells in us and sin will not have the final victory the beast may knock us down. The beast may devour us for the moment. But in the end, we'll have the victory. We'll slay the beast. And one day, once and for all, we'll be free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word. It is timely. We live in a day, Father God, where impurity and ungodliness rule. The minds and hearts have been corrupted of this world, but even among your people, so many have been defiled, corrupted. We're seeing just so much happen, O oh Lord, so quickly. Even in my lifetime, the sexual depravity of our nation has descended into depths that I'd never imagined. But yet, Lord, in the midst of Babylon, you have your remnant. In the midst of a wicked society, you've called us out to be holy and pure, to be different from the rest. Oh, help us, Lord. Give us strength to be alert, to be wise and sober every day, and that we would not rest for a minute, that we would kill sin, that we would slay it, that we'd murder it. Give us the power. Give us the hope. Give us the boldness. In Jesus' name, amen.